Good morning. Today, I want to call your attention to what happened after Jesus' birth. Now, we know what happens after Christmas in our culture. There's return shopping. There's sale shopping. There's going to get what you really wanted but didn't get shopping. There's football games. Decorations are taken down. If you're in my family, we take them down at New Year's. Oh, exercise equipment sales skyrocket as everyone's waistlines grow due to eating too many goodies. On a serious note, there's trying to pay off the credit card you maxed out buying things you didn't need to buy. And on a more serious note, there's finding employment when there isn't a lot of options out there on the horizon. There is that usual letdown after such a big buildup coming towards Christmas. And then what most of us do is we take a deep breath and dive in again for New Year's. But today I want to call our attention to what happened after Jesus' birth biblically. And so if you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to read verses 21 through 40. 21 through 40, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, and now he is being presented at the temple. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout looking for the, the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said... Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage 
and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. What we just read was God's word. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us. Thank you, Lord, that you teach us. Thank you, Lord, that even as we read your word just now, the only perfect part of this worship service, by the way, is your word. We thank you, Lord, that that you're going to open our eyes to see wonderful things in it today. You're going to show us what you want for us today. And we want to give you all the glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What happens after Christmas? All of the things in our culture that happen after Christmas can and do often take place without any thought, mention, or acknowledgement of Jesus Christ being born in Bethlehem so long ago to ultimately die in Jerusalem some 30 years later. Basically, people just live for themselves with no thought of God whatsoever. And many who hear these words today, many of you, once lived like that. Many of you once lived with no thought of God. But now, by grace, through faith in Christ, you have been, how shall I say it, reoriented, changed. Uh, Your life has been rearranged by the grace of God in Christ. Christ who came to earth and became one of us to die for sinners. And some of you, as you heard those words, were saying, yes, but the way I usually live sometimes doesn't reflect that. You see, even though we are so prone to wander, we are so prone to to go astray, and, and so we must be reminded often. If we are not reminded often, then we stray from life sustaining truth to strength draining error we swerve into the way of strength sapping error and we know there are many who claim allegiance to jesus today who live basically as functional atheists as if god does not exist that's why we must be reminded again and again of what second timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 says remember jesus christ risen from the dead remember jesus he came to die that's why he was born and the incarnation god becoming man in the person of jesus christ is the single most significant the single most important event in all of history and so many live without a thought of the one who lived and died so that people in his image might have life So today what I want us to do is focus our attention on what happened biblically after Christmas, after Jesus' birth. And in the story, what I hope you will see is that we can live life to the fullest because God went to the fullest extent to give us life. 
that the reason we have reason for living is because God is faithful and that he has made a way possible for us to be reconciled to God, to be made new in Christ. And in faithfulness, he sustains us in his faithfulness. Because God is faithful, we then can live fruitful lives to the glory of God. It's as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15 says, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now the story begun earlier continues on. It only uh, makes perfect sense because Jesus is the major figure in the Bible. The story begun earlier about the birth of Christ continues on. Luke says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 21 that when eight days had passed, Jesus was eight days old, little baby, eight days old, right before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, Jesus. It was the name given by the angel before he was even conceived in the womb. It shows us that his parents were obedient to God. His parents did not follow the cultural norm of naming a son after the father. In fact, if you think back when John the Baptist was born, there was pressure from the family to name the child Zacharias after his father. And they said, no, his name will be John, the same name that the angel gave. So Jesus was named according to the word of God. His parents were obedient to God in naming him. And then we see that his parents present him to the Lord. Now, this always blows my mind. That Jesus, God the Son, is presented to God. It just, it just blows my mind. That his parents presented him to God. Look at verse 22. When the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, was completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem. You only go up to Jerusalem because it is elevated. And he is presented to God 40 days after he's born. He's 40 days old. Just a little baby here. Now, Jewish law considered that a woman was ceremonially unclean after the birth of a child. And on the eighth day, the child would be circumcised. But the mother was still considered unclean ceremoniously for another 33 days if the child's a boy. Now, 66 more days if it's a girl. Uh, I think it takes longer with girls, with, with the ladies. Um, uh, then what would happen is the mother would offer a sacrifice, which would be a lamb, or if he didn't have enough money, um, two birds, two doves or two young pigeons. Now, what we read here is that they offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which shows that um, Jesus was born into a poor family, relatively poor family, not the poorest of the poor, but poorer than others. And he could identify with the poor. And so, so must we. So should we. But Jesus was born into a poor family. 
There was something else in the picture, though. The first son was to be presented to the Lord and then, in a manner of speaking, bought back, redeemed um, with an offering. In Exodus chapter 13 and verse 2, God told Moses, he said, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb belongs to me. Verse 13, he says, Every firstborn among your sons you shall redeem. Now we see this pattern in, in part in, in 1 Samuel. And uh, you can go there with me if you'd like. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 24. You might be familiar with this story, but Samuel was born to Hannah, who wasn't able to have kids, had cried out to God for a child, and God had promised her a son. Okay, you pick up the story in verse 24, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now when she had weaned him, weaned Samuel, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and, a, and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine. They were not a poor family. And brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him, literally means lent or given over to. I have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And then it says he worshiped the Lord there. Now, one significant difference here is that in in Hannah's situation with Samuel, she actually brought him to the temple and left him there, and he lived there. That wasn't the norm, but that's what they did. But if you think about what Joseph and Mary did, as recorded in Luke 2, they were following God's word. They were following God's law. They were part of the remnant of, of faithful remnant of Israel. They were obedient to God. That's the main point here that's being brought out that Joseph and Mary did all that they did in obedience to God. They were faithful to the law. So they acknowledged the birth of Christ in this way by obeying God. Now, the birth of Jesus, though, was also acknowledged by two prophets, Simeon and Anna. Uh, it's the only mention of these two people in Scripture. You see it in verse 25. Start with Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem. Just a man living in Jerusalem. But not just any man. His name was Simeon, and he was righteous. He was right in God's sight. He was just in God's sight. He believed God, and he was devout. He was devoted to God. And he was looking for something. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. Now, Simeon prophesied. He prophesied. He didn't just prophesy, though. He also sang a song of praise to God. He also gave a blessing to Mary. Uh, but basically, in verse 25, it says there was this man, and it's an attention-getting word. You, it's call, Luke's calling attention, saying, you need to focus on this man for a moment. He loved God. He lived accordingly. He was looking forward to the Messiah being born. He was waiting expectantly for God to keep his promise. 
And the consolation of Israel is what he's looking for. What does that mean, the consolation of Israel? We need to go to Isaiah chapter 40. Actually, you have several places in Isaiah to find out. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 1 and 2. How great God is that he is going to do this. It says this, Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. But there's going to be comfort. There's going to be consolation. When God would bring an end to Israel's misfortunes, to their alienation, to their suffering by the Messiah's coming. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 13. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And then we need to go to Isaiah 61 and verse 2. By the way, we'll start at verse 1, actually. These are the words that Jesus read in the synagogue when he be, uh, at the beginning of his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable day of the Lord, year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Reminds us of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted in Christ. The idea here is that the time of consolation would be the time that the promised Holy Spirit would be given the one who would comfort and encourage, basically the counselor would come. Go with me to John chapter 14. Jesus spoke of this. Jesus spoke of this in John chapter 14 and verse 16. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, here's what Jesus said. I will ask the Father. So God the Son will ask God the Father... And he will give you another helper, another helper, uh, parakletos in Greek, one who is called alongside to help, one who is a comforter, one who is an advocate, one who is an intercessor. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. The Holy Spirit. And then in John chapter 15, in verse 26, Jesus said this, When the Helper comes, same word, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. The Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus. It's like Romans 8 that says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Those who are believers in Christ. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Consoler was upon Simeon. 
he was dwelling with Simeon. This man who waited for the comfort and consolation that God would bring through his son, there was power, there was anointing, there was the presence of God on Simeon. Verse 26, Luke chapter 2. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. The Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die. See, we look for God's promises and and we say, well, you know, God's been slow about his promise. We look for the promise of Jesus coming back. But most of us will explain it this way. Those of us who are believers will say, well, Jesus will come back or or I'm going to go to be with Jesus in heaven, whichever comes first. But sometimes we put it way, way off in the future But Simeon was not that way. He had been assured by God, and he was believing it, that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed, Jesus himself. So he, and by the way, he received Jesus and his presence because the Holy Spirit let him know that it was Jesus he was holding in his arms. It's a great example for us. We say, how do I know what I'm supposed to do in life? You know, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus, I'm in the Word, I'm seeking God, I'm asking for His will, but I don't know what to do. What do we do? It's a a great example for us, this example of Simeon. You'll know because the Holy Spirit indwelling you will show you. You keep your eyes on Jesus, you keep your heart in the Word, and walk in the Spirit as just like Simeon did, and and God will show you. That's not so, something someone can say, it will be exactly like this. It's going to happen exactly like this. Now the Holy Spirit's going to do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Never in contradiction to the word of God. But the Holy Spirit will act. He did to Simeon. And in verse 27, what we see is that at that very moment that this convergence happens, at the very moment that Jesus was being brought in as a 40-day-old baby by Joseph and Mary, Simeon is being led by the Spirit of God into the temple. Their paths are crossing. No coincidence. Sovereignty of God, the the predetermined plan of God was bringing this about. So just at the exact time, it says that he was in the Spirit. You see that in verse 27. He came in the Spirit into the temple. He was in the Spirit. Literally, he was under the influence of something. The Holy Spirit. You know, Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't allow yourself to be, to be controlled by a substance. Allow the Holy Spirit of God to control you. Well, Simeon comes into the temple in the spirit literally under the influence of the spirit that the holy spirit was directing him and guiding him that's what it means to be in the spirit biblically speaking and simeon takes jesus in his arms just like we would hold a baby because he was holding a real baby and he takes jesus into his arms And he knows right then and there that God's word had been fulfilled to him. 
he knew that at that point, he could be the first one to say officially, it is well with my soul because of Jesus. It is well with my soul. I can go now because I've seen. So, by the way, look at verse 30. He says in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. He had just said, you're releasing your bond servant to depart in peace. He knows who God is. He knows who he is. He knows God is God and that he is his servant. And he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He doesn't say, my eyes have seen the Christ. He doesn't say that my eyes have seen the Messiah. He doesn't say, my eyes have seen Jesus. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. You see, to see Jesus is to see salvation. Jesus himself. Simeon then says, um, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. Verse 31, which you have prepared in the presence of all people. You did this out in the open. You did this so that a lot of people could see. Reminds us of Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, where all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all languages are around the throne of God. That's how it's going to be. That's how it's going to be. The first hint here in the Gospels that the gospel would not just be for Israel, but for all nations, all nations. That's why you can have Italians up here preaching the word of God. That's why you can have Japanese and Hungarian and Egyptian and Mexican and every other people group in the world have a chance to know Jesus because it wasn't just for Israel. It was for all nations, all peoples. Verse, 20, uh, verse 32, he says, he calls Jesus something. He calls him a light, a light of revelation to the, Gentile, to the Gentiles. And then in verse, 33, uh, verse 32, same verse, he says, the glory of your people Israel, the light and the glory, the light of revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. The light of revelation means he's revealing things previously unknown. Previously unrecognized, previously uncomprehended by some. Isaiah 49, verse 6. God says, I will make you, the Messiah, a light to the nations, that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. Your people, though, he says, too. Not just all nations, but your people. That same light that brings revelation to pagans will bring glory to Israel, who already had God's revelation in his word but had not accepted what that revelation was pointing to, but that if they would receive Jesus, they too would receive glory. Glory. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Uh, John chapter 1 and verse 14. Verse 33. What happens? Joseph and Mary, called here his mother and his father, were amazed at the things which were being told about him. Now think about all the significant things they knew about Jesus already. But still they were amazed. This won't get old hat to them. This was universe exploding news. Once again. But then Simeon gives them some sober news wrapped up in a blessing. It is a blessing. But there is some sobering news. Verse 34. He turns and blesses them and says to Mary specifically, to Mary his mother, Behold, this child, this Jesus, 
is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. And to the end that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus will bring many in Israel to the point of moral decision that they must either accept who Jesus is or they must reject who Jesus is. And that some would go to destruction, to collapse. They will fall, disbelieving. They will stumble on Jesus. To those who reject Jesus, 1 Peter 2.8 says, He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But others will be exalted. Others will be, go to resurrection. They will rise. He is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. Some will not believe. Others will believe. That though some will go to, to resurrection, they will rise due to faith in Christ as the only way of salvation. As Ephesians 2 and verse 6 tells us that He, God, raised us up with Him, Jesus. That He will be a sign to be opposed. It signifies the rejection of Christ. It signifies the hatred that would be spewed towards Him. The crucifixion that he would endure at the hands of evil men. And he also said that a sword would even pierce the soul of Mary. That personal grief that Mary would endure watching her son die. That the divisions caused by people's sin and rejection of Jesus would deeply affect Mary. And how could it not? Picture the scene at the cross with Mary watching her son be killed in humility, in shame. says that he will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. We all know that there's nothing that can be hidden from God, that all things are laid bare and open to the, before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. But Simeon was spirit-led. Simeon saw by faith. Simeon was satisfied by Christ. Able to say it as well with my soul because of Jesus. And there was Anna. Anna. She rejoiced in Jesus. She was a prophetess. She spoke God's word. We don't have an exact quote, a direct quote from her, but she spoke of God accurately and she praised him. Hers is an example of continual worship, of continual service. She's godly. She's 84 years old. She's a widow. And she continually served God. She was a humble Servant of God who lived in God's presence. What does it say about her? That when she saw Jesus, again, at that very moment, the perfect timing of God, at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God. And she continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of, his, of, of Jerusalem, very similar to the consolation of Israel phrase. What she have to give to God? Fasting and prayer. I want to say something to you. Let's say you're sitting there today, you're listening to these words and you're thinking to yourself, I don't really have a lot to offer God. I don't really have that many gifts. I'm not really that talented. I don't really have much to offer anybody. Much less, I want to worship God, but I, I, I have really nothing, really nothing of, of uh, anything 
like the kind of things I see other people having. What do you do? Well, if you don't think you have much to offer God, take heart because everything that is brought with a willing heart is accepted by God. Think all the way back to Genesis when, when Cain brought an offering to God. It may have looked beautiful. It may have been wonderful and all that. But it was not accepted because his heart was not right with God. His heart was evil. See, Anna offered with a willing heart fasting and prayer. Nothing is too little. And oftentimes it's those quiet things. It's those humble acts that God most is pleased with. That God is pleased with most. But everything counts in God's economy. Nothing is too little. But she gave thanks to God. She spoke of him to all who would listen. And in verses 39 and 40, we see what happened. Just basically, they went back to their life. Just to go live in Nazareth. They had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. So they went home. Went back to Galilee. To their own city of Nazareth. And Jesus grew up like kids grow up. Kids, you know, you're, you were smaller last year. So were all of us probably, but we're, you're smaller last year. You're getting bigger. You're growing in wisdom and stature, right? That's what Jesus did. The child continued to grow, verse 40, and became strong. He got taller. He got stronger. And he increased in wisdom. Again, it blows our minds that God in the flesh would need to increase in wisdom. You see, even in the next section, that when they took that journey to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old, he had this uncommon understanding of who he was and what he was there to do. But it says that the grace of God was upon him. That is different. That is significant. The grace of God was on him. God was pleased with him. This was his son in whom he was well pleased. John 1.14 says that we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And this is now the fourth week in a row that we have been focusing on the glory of Christ, seen in the story of Christ. And the glory, you can really see it in this passage in the, in a, in the way of a pattern. It's this pattern of promise, fulfillment, praise. That God makes a promise, he keeps it, and the resulting worship that people give to him. You can see it on a micro level in, in, in what Simeon and Anna said and did. You can see it on a macro level in terms of what God did from even as far back as Genesis, promising a Messiah. But let me give you three applications according to, uh, according to this, I, this pattern of promise and fulfillment and praise. First, with regard to God's promise, and you really see this in verse 26. It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That God is faithful to all his promises. We're not faithful to all of our promises. We say things and don't, don't do it. God says things and always does it. His promises are rooted in his eternal purposes. He doesn't have plan B's. He's always acting for our good and his glory. Al Mohler put it this way, every word of the Old Testament points to Christ. He is not only the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning him, he is the perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, the Christmas story does not begin in Bethlehem, for Israel had been promised the Messiah. 
as Luke reveals, Simeon beheld the baby Jesus in the temple and understood this infant to be the Lord's Christ, the Davidic Messiah. Simeon understood this clearly. The Christmas story did not begin in Bethlehem or even Jerusalem. See, it began before the world began. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things came into being through Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. See, if we get the Christmas story wrong, we get the gospel wrong. And you don't want to get the gospel wrong. Muller also said this, Christmas is not God's second plan. Before He created the world, God determined to save sinners through the blood of His own Son. The grand narrative of the Bible points to this essential truth. God determined to bring glory to himself through the salvation of a people redeemed and purchased by his own son, the Christ. Bethlehem and Calvary were essential parts of God's plan from the beginning before the cosmos was brought into being as the son obeyed the will of the father in creation. You see, what happens then is believing God's promises calls for our trust, and our obedience. We need to trust what he says and obey it. Live accordingly. The second thing has to do with fulfillment. Verse 28. If you look at verse 28 again, that's when Simeon took Jesus into his arms and blessed God. Can you believe it? He's got God in his arms. He's blessing God. And he's saying some amazing things. But what we see here in terms of fulfillment, the fulfillment was there as he picked up the child. He knew. The Holy Spirit let him know. Just like the Holy Spirit lets us know. And he knew. He was holding this child. And see, God reveals his plan in perfect time. God always reveals his plan in the perfect time. We think maybe sometimes God's slow, right? And then you read in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, that God is not slow about his promise like some count slowness. Right? That's not the same way. Think about it. Think about Noah waiting for the flood after building an ark. Think about Noah waiting on, on the ark, uh, traveling on the ark for a year and 10 days, being in there a, a year and 10 days, waiting for water to subside. Think about Moses, 40 years in the wilderness. Think about Elijah, three years praying for rain, waiting, waiting. Think about Paul going away for three years to be prepared for ministry by the Lord. God's ways are higher than our ways, Isaiah 55 tells us. Jeremiah 33 tells us that God has plans for us, plans to give us a future and a hope, not to harm us, but to help us. God brings his plans to fruition uh, exactly how and when he desires how he has planned it. And there's no plan of God that can be thwarted. No plan of God can be thwarted. You know, sometimes we don't believe God. Sometimes we don't obey. Sometimes we don't choose what's right. Sometimes we don't go after what is right. Sometimes we go after empty things and we are left empty. We experience the heartache that comes from going after empty things. Knowing that we have sinned against God. Knowing that we have disappointed God. Knowing that we have even grieved the Holy Spirit. And what we hope is that godly sorrow gets worked into repentance. Turning from our sins. Then wanting to do what pleases God. 
But see, waiting for God's fulfillment takes expectancy, it takes patience, it takes endurance. It's waiting. The waiting is the hardest part. Tom Petty said that. Psalm 37, verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Psalm 40 and verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. His timing, His timing is perfect. You can trust that His timing is perfect. What are you waiting for in your life today? What have you been waiting for for years? God's timing is perfect. He is not slow. He is not dilly-dallying around. God will bring it to pass. The last thing is about praise. It's about our response. Verse 30 shows this. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He's blessing God. He's praising God. His response was praise. It was instigated by God. It was enabled by God. It was sustained by the Holy Spirit. Because God's people need to respond appropriately to God. In worship and in service. But sometimes we see those things as separate things. Biblically speaking, they are very connected. Look with me at what Anna did all the time. Anna. Verse 37. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. That word serving in the Greek is latruo. It means to serve God, but it also means to worship God. One and the same. Her service was worship. Her worship was service. It's the idea of a hired servant versus a slave. A hired servant that would serve or worship voluntarily, with gladness, not under compulsion, not forced. And it really refers to the Levites' service. That their service was worship, their worship was service. They were one and the same. Responding in praise calls for service flowing from a worshiping heart. That we would, as Psalm 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. That in whatever we do, we would work at it as working as unto the Lord and not for people, because it is the Lord Christ whom we serve, as Colossians 3 tells us. That if we serve, we must do so with the strength that God supplies, as 1 Peter 4 tells us. But God sent Jesus, and Jesus is the promised salvation. No other option. And so people must choose. See, God makes promises, He fulfills them, but we've got to act. When some, think about it this way. When someone comes to faith in Christ, believing God's promises, it is in God's perfect timing. God does it. We cannot force it. And those who do not know Jesus yet, but then come to realize they, they need Him, they come to the point where they want Jesus more than sin, and they turn to Him and they're saved. All in God's perfect timing. But other people reject him and face the consequences. And then there's the one thing that's for sure. Those who really know Jesus, who've been saved by the grace of God in Christ, they continually say, they continue to say throughout their life, very personally, I need you, Jesus. They want to serve him. They want to worship him. In this passage today, what we see soon after Jesus was born is people responding to God. How a man and a woman responded to God in the flesh. And it shows us that men and women, male and female, responded to Jesus. That rich and poor, old and young, whosoever will come, 
God accepts those who choose to respond in trust and obedience as he enables and directs. And what he expects of us in the process is trust, obedience, and action. Action. He provides the necessary tools. He gives all the gifts that's needed, the abilities, the heart, the desire that are required, but we must act upon it. If you think about it, this pattern taken together as a whole, the promise, fulfillment, praise pattern, it leads us to believe God's promise, calls for trust and obedience. It leads us to wait for God's fulfillment, calls for expectancy and patience, which God gives through his word, by the way. Jot down Romans chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. God gives endurance, and he gives it through his word. And then that leads to respond in praise. It calls for our service, that because God is faithful, we can live fruitfully for God's glory. We can walk by faith. We can find our joy in Christ alone. We can serve God. We can share Jesus with others. But God's people need to take action by faith. It's like Daniel chapter 11 and verse 32. The people who know their God will display strength and will take action. Christmas Day. Some friends of ours were on that Northwest flight that uh, was interrupted by a passenger who ignited something that would have caused much harm if someone had not acted and acted quickly. Some guy jumped over rows of passengers and subdued this guy in a headlock. Someone acted to apprehend the perpetrator before something terrible happened. It was his time to act, and he did. It was appropriate. I'm sure there were people sitting around there that just thought they should have. It's just like when God said to Joshua as he was commissioning him to replace Moses. And by the way, God waited till Moses was out of the picture when insecurity probably had sat, set in and fear might have set in. And here's what he said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. He says, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Promise. I will not fail you or forsake you. That's a promise. And then be strong and courageous. He's calling for action based on the promise. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. God's word was to be with him all the time so that he may do according to all that is written in it. And then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success, which in God's eyes is acting wisely. Acting wisely. And then he says it again. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Act. Step out on faith. Based upon the promises of God. He says, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's the promise he took with him. See, it was Joshua's time to act. It was Joseph and Mary's time to act. It was Simeon and Anna's time to act on that first Christmas, just like it is for us. In such a time as this, in which we live. Let's pray. Lord God, I truly believe that you want us to walk by faith in life. We acknowledge, Lord, that time is not waiting on us. The time doesn't wait, it keeps going. And that we know, Lord, that the time to act is now. The time to act upon your promises is now. For those who don't know Christ, the time to act upon the promise that all who come to him by faith will be saved is now. The time is now, but we're always waiting for someday, Lord. We know we do.
And we know the danger is in waiting someday and it never coming because today was our someday. And Lord, we also know that if we know you, that you're with us and you've given us your promises and you have either fulfilled them or you are fulfilling them or you will fulfill them. And so Lord, we ask that you enable us to move confidently, dependent upon you for strength and wisdom to do what is good and right. And we pray in Jesus' name.